0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Thank you, Ryan, and Worship Team. Hope welcome back to Sycamore for a little bit. Thank you, uh, Kirsty. I know she, maybe she stepped out, but it was isn't it one one of the reasons why we are engaging this series is we want to not just study doctrine and study what the Bible says. And hear what God's story is, but see how God's story intersects with our own stories. And Kirsty was a wonderful example. That I, um, Scott, make sure you thank Kirsty. It takes courage to get up here. Uh, thank you for for sharing that gift of, of vulnerability and, and sharing that story with us. Well, I'm Chris. I'm one of the elders here. If I haven't met you, I would like to meet you. Come up afterwards, say hello. Um, I will try to remember your name. Sometimes I do better than others. Jesse mentioned, we, if you are new here, we are at uh, the front end of a new series that we are walking through uh, what our church believes, uh, what our church believes, what our doctrinal statement is. And a couple of reasons why we've done that is, uh, one, we discovered more and more that uh, fewer and fewer people in our church had read our old statement, uh, and it was understandably difficult to wade through. It was long, has difficult words in it. And we thought, you know what, this doesn't need to be just a PDF on our website. This needs to be something that we can engage as a community to say, you know what, this is who we are. This is what we believe. And uh, most likely, our old PDF on the website, you didn't download and take to the dinner table and discuss as a family. But we wanted to create a tool that says, you know what, this is a discipleship tool we can engage together uh, and and worded in such a way that you could take this to lunch today, read through the paragraph on the Bible, ask a question that's in here, and have a conversation as a family. Um, and so that's the, the hope of this. Uh, this is not a final draft, as we've said in the past. This is a this is a working copy, and we want your feedback along the way. You may. Uh, hear something that we preach or read this and say, you know what, this part's missing or I'm not sure you mean this here. Uh, And and come up to me afterwards. Uh, Someone else will be here besides or or over the course of the weeks ahead. But we want your feedback as we uh, engage this together. It is a collaborative effort and we want definitely all of us in the process. Well, last week, we began uh, going into our story of what we believe, and we talked about who God is, that God is the creator of the world. The world fell, humanity fell, Adam and Eve fell, and as a result, we fell. And the rest of the story is one of redemption, where God is connecting, putting the pieces back together again. And one day, we will get to heaven where, it's all, where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. We can live in communion perfectly with God. Right now, we're still in the middle of that in process, but that's the story of the Bible, and that's the story of our lives, as we heard from, from Kirstie and, 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 and Paul last week, of how God is intersecting or hijacking our own lives, so to speak, to bring us back to himself. Well, this week, we are going to look at the Bible itself the vehicle of this history of ours, the vehicle of the story, and, and what it is about the Bible that, uh, that matters. Why, even, uh, why do we even start with the Bible or, or why is the Bible an important part of that? Uh, and really because what we believe about the Bible impacts everything else, doesn't it? Uh, what we believe about the Bible impacts what we think about God, what we believe about the Bible impacts what we think about salvation or marriage or, or anything else. Uh, And so it's important here at the beginning to sit back and say, what is it about the Bible that we believe? And and, uh, to introduce that, I actually thought I would tell you a story of three Bibles. Um, But before I do that, let me pray, and we'll get into God's Word together. Our Father, you are good. So humbled to hear how you work and encouraged, how you work in in each other's lives, the story that... Uh, Kirsty shared how you had a plan from the beginning, Father. And we know that in each of our lives, we have seen you work, and you've you've touched us, and you've taken over our own lives and hijacked even our own desires and thoughts, and and and, and taken our hearts to be fond after you. Father, pray this would be real, not just in our heads and our doctrine, but also in our hearts. That you would uh, transform us, that we would be people that uh, long for you. Lord, be our teacher this morning. Father, take the things that I might have to say that are distractions, help them be forgotten quickly, help us focus on the things that you have for us. Pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, as I was thinking about my own life and how the Bible has impacted me, I looked at my bookshelf and I found three physical Bibles that have part tell my story with the Bible, and I thought I'd share them with you. When I was five years old, uh, my parents, or someone gave me a backpack. I think it wasn't my parents, I don't know how I got it, but it was a canvas green army backpack. And which is probably one of the best gifts you can give a five-year-old boy, because it's just an adventure waiting to happen, right? So I went around my house, and I think I found a flashlight, and I put the flashlight in there because that seemed like that would make good sense. And I found this Bible, which had, had appeared in our house, we had just moved, and this Bible had suddenly appeared and it was not part of our family before we moved, but now that we were in this new house, this Bible was here, no one seemed to claim it, and the Bible seemed important in my family, so therefore it should go in my backpack, because that was just seemed important. So I took my Bible and my flashlight in my backpack, and I went out into the great big backyard to play on my adventure, and shortly after, because I was five, or tired, or bored, the backpack came off, I finished whatever I was doing outside, and I came back inside forgetting all about the backpack next three days, torrential rain. <laughs> and I remember looking out the back window, seeing my backpack out there, taking great delight that this backpack was getting soaked in the rain. And I called my mom or dad over and shared with them the backpack. They showed, showed it to them. And they didn't think much of it until the rain stopped. I was commissioned to go retrieve my belongings, bring them inside, which I did. And in that moment, I quickly discovered that this Bible was pretty much ruined it was just soaked through the pages are crunchy the binding is broken and it just it just crunches a lot now (laughs) if you can hear it but it's it's a loud one and i sat down as a five about a five-year-old and i got my first parental speech that i remember as we say in our family i was speechified by my parents and I was told the importance of taking care of things and the, the worst part of this was that this was not mine to destroy, that this had belonged to the previous owner of the house, Mr. Ayler, and that this was his Bible. He had left it in the house and I had ruined something that was not mine. And the only logical outcome was that I needed to purchase this Bible from Mr. Ayler. Being five and not having money or a job, <laughs> My mother and father came up with a, a number of chores that I could do around the house where I earned dimes. And after a few days, I, I earned 50 cents, which was the, which was deemed the purchase price. And I collected my dimes, gave them to my parents who then presumably found Mr. Ehler. <laughs> now I realize the Bible came with the house, right? But, but this was a teaching moment. And I think my parents, at the moment, as we do as parents, think I've, I've, I've taught this, that I've, I've taught my son responsibility. But what they didn't catch, what the unintended consequence was this was the very first thing that I' had purchased. This was actually mine. This is This is Kirsty's fault, right?. <laughs> it, And this little Bible was something that I just took to church, flipped through the crinkly pages, right, and just kind of became mine. And this was something that I had acquired. It was mine. And in it, I met Christ. Junior high, this one grade Bible class, and in Bible class, we had an exam on John chapter 4, which is the story of the woman at the well. And in that story, I, uh, we were handed a chart that we were going to need to, perform, to, to repeat on this final exam. And as a seventh grader, I looked at it and thought, there is too much information on this chart. It cannot be memorized. No human being can memorize this. Mr. Van Haste, the teacher, is unreasonable. And so as a seventh grader who wanted to please everyone and have good grades... I decided the best course of action would be to cheat and so I took my Bible opened to John 3 and I wrote all the answers in John 3 and then not half the answers in John 5 knowing that the exam was on John 4 and that way I could have John 4 open and it would be clean and as the teacher walked by I could flip to John 3 and then as he walked by again I could flip to John 5 and collect all the answers that I needed and I wrote them all down on the chart for the exam and when I was done, realized I had cheated so perfectly, I would have 100%, which would not be reasonable. <laughs> so I actually then went through and erased some answers so that I would get a 95. Gregory, what kind of person cheats on a Bible exam? <laughs> I went back to my locker, quickly erased all the answers that I had in pencil, and I've kept the Bible, honestly, because it reminds me that god is one who who has saved people who cheat on bible exams while i'm so consumed on looking good and playing the part and making sure i have the answers my parents are happy my teacher is happy i am a sinner and just like the woman at the well jesus looks at me saves me and says go and sin no more when i was in high school and in college this was my bible a Thompson Chain reference Bible that has hundreds of thousands of cross-references, and I learned to dig into the Bible, flip, 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 less crunchy pages this time, uh, and just to really get into God's Word. What does the Bible say? And as I thought about these three Bibles, I, I stopped to ask myself, what is it about the Bible that has consumed me through my life? So even then, when I graduated college, I went to work for a company that prints Bibles, makes Bibles. And have started my own company that works. To, our, our company mission and my personal life mission is to help people read, engage, and apply the Bible. Why? What is it about this book that makes me say, I, "I just this is so important to me"? Sometimes it's like a splinter that comes under my skin. I can't get get rid of it, but it drives me and it shapes me and consumes me. And what is it about this book that causes that? And I've thought about that many times over my life. This book has consumed me for 40 years. And, and what is it about that? And, and as I've thought about it, I, I, I found a verse and a passage in John 6. Would you turn with me in John 6? I know we were there this fall. We will just uh, touch on a couple things. But as we look at the Bible and look at His Word and the, and the role the Bible has in our lives... There are three things. If you're keeping a score in your, in your notes and you want to get these three points down, we're going to look at uh, the power of God's word. We're going to look at the position of God's word, that is the authority it has in our lives, but also the person of God's word. So the, the power of God's word, the position, uh, and the person. And, and this passage really struck me about the power of the book, power of God's word. So John chapter 6, you'll remember if you see your headings in the Bible, this is the story of the feeding of 5,000. And uh, of 5,000 men and even more women and children, 7,000, 10,000 people. And at the end of the story, of this particular story, the people wanted to make Jesus king by force. This is like Moses creating manna for 40 years. This is Jesus. Imagine this. Jesus could, this is the ultimate social program. He could provide all the bread we need. We wouldn't have to work for food. We could, we could, we could do so much if Jesus was king after he'd given us bread for all these, the masses. And in John chapter six, uh, he gets done with, with the feeding, and uh, down to verse 35, when he begins to begins to teach, verse 35, Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." Then let's skip down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, "I am the bread that came from heaven." Pause for a second here. Here's Jesus. Many of them, some of them knew. They said, "Jesus, is Jesus of Nazareth. He's Joseph's son. And he's saying he's coming from heaven. And, and people started to leave. They think, you know what, this guy's crazy. He's not going to become our king. And now he's up there saying, I'm the bread that has come from heaven. And more and more people start to leave because he's not the savior they want. If you were a PR rep at this moment, you'd probably take Jesus aside and say, hey, dial it back. You're losing the crowd. You had 10,000 people here a little bit ago, and now you're saying these things that are a little outlandish, and they're starting to go. And whether or not someone said that to him or not, Jesus knew where he had to press on. And verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the for the life of the world is my flesh. And Jesus in essence says, you need to eat my flesh, drink my blood, and everyone at this point thinks he is crazy, and they leave. And this crowd of 10,000 is now down to the 12, maybe a few more, in verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And this is it. This is the verse, 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I read that. I'm like, that's it. There are times I go places Jesus is not popular. He's not politically correct. He doesn't say the right things about so many things in our culture. But where else would I go? These are the words of eternal life that have hit me between the eyes and says, you know what, this is God's word and this is my salvation and I am a sinner who cheats on Bible exams. But he is the one who redeems and draws back and forgives and that power is something that just consumes me. I found that my life has been changed, it has been transformed by this book. We could talk about the power of God's Word, and we could say, hey, I I can prove it's powerful. Let's go through the dozens of prophecies that talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, show how they're fulfilled in the New Testament, and you'd see the power of God. We could talk about the power of God and just the historical accuracy. For for hundreds of years, people say, I don't know, the Bible might not be true. And then the archaeologists dig, and they find a building that actually verifies the history of the Bible. And you say, you know what? There's power in this. There's power in that The kids' bulletin. You ready, kids? There's there's power in that the Bible was written over 1,500 years with over 40 authors, most of them who didn't know each other, uh, 66 books, and yet it tells one storyline. 1,189 chapters of the Bible. There's God that created, we fall, and God's putting the pieces back together again until one day we can live with him forever again. And that's powerful. As powerful for someone who leaves his backpack out in the rain, who's a failure, who cheats on Bible exams, but to say, you know what, Jesus loves me anyway. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And there's power in this book. Why are we Kishwaukee Bible Church, where Bible is our middle name, Right? (laughs) because this is the book with power. We're not just saying, you know what, this is not just any book. This is God's book. And it has the power to transform lives. And while the prophecies matter and the history matters, the fact when I read this, I find God. And I find that God finds me. There's amazing power in the book. That's why it's in our doctrinal statement, why it even starts at toward the beginning to say this matters. But more than just power, this Bible is a judge. It's an arbiter. It's an umpire of what's true and false, what's right and wrong. Flip to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is uh, toward the back, one of the last big books before Revelation. The book of Hebrews was written to... A unique group of people, people that had been uh, faithful in their Jewish faith, had been introduced with Jesus and converted or adopted Christ in their faith, and they became Christians. But after a period of time, they began to waver, saying, you know what, we were brought up Jewish, maybe we should go back to the Jewish faith. Or uh, maybe, we're not so, maybe is, is all this about Jesus really true? And they started to waver, what should we believe? Maybe we should go back. They had been convinced at one point. But as we can all understand, there's doubts sometimes that hit. And they had their doubts. And they said, well, maybe we should go back here. And undoubtedly, they had friends back at the synagogue saying, hey, come back. And maybe mom and dad was back at the synagogue. And so they're, they're, they're feeling, what do I do? And so the, the, the letter to the Hebrews reminds the people that Christ is better. And he begins in Hebrews 1 and 2, and he reminds that Jesus is better. He says, Moses was good. Moses was great. But Jesus is better. Therefore, don't go back. Press on in the faith. And he says, the law was good, but the law that Jesus brings is better. Press on in the faith. Don't go back. And he gets to Hebrews 4, and he says, the land that Moses gave was good, the land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses brought the people, and Joshua entered into the land. But there's a better land coming. We know the end of the story, Revelation 21:22, and that land is a place where there'll be no more pain, no more tears, no more hunger, and we can just walk with God. That land's coming. That's better than milk and honey and olives. Those are good, but keep your eyes over here. And in Hebrews 4 is where we pick up. For if Joshua, uh, verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In essence, you're left with a choice. You could say, I'm going to go back to Judaism or I'm going to stay faithful to Christ. Just like he's making an analogy here how uh, the people of Israel, while they were wandering in the wilderness, they decided, well, rather than go into the land, we're gonna, we, we shouldn't do it, and God judged them for 40 years. It's kind of the idea, don't, don't be like them. Press on in the faith. Don't, don't give in. But you can sense and put yourself in the position of these original hearers. There's tension. I might have mom over here saying, come back to the synagogue, and I might have dad over here saying, stay faithful to Jesus. Or I've got this friend saying, oh, come on back, come on back. And maybe even I'm internally torn. What do I do? I want this, but I know Judaism better. But I feel, What's the answer? How do I find the answer? And I think we could all look at things and say, there might be even faith issues in your life to say, what's right? What do I do here? Is this the choice or is this the choice? What should I believe about fill in the blank? And how do I know? And the author of Hebrews finds, sets up the conflict, he shows the people, and then he says, The answer, the arbiter, the judge, the person who can, the, the way we can find, verse 12. How do I know what to do? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom. We must give an account. How do I know what's right and wrong? How do I know how I should live? How do I know which voice is right? How do I know if I feel something, but I'm not sure if that's the truth or not? We have an arbiter, a a, a judge, that the Word of God that says, the Word of God is living and active and can take us apart, dismantle us to get down to the core of it. The one that that, that judges the, the thoughts and the minds of our hearts. In the terms of where this fits in our doctrinal statement, if this book is a judge, if it's an arbitrator, if it's something that can actually uh, tell us between right and wrong, we approach this as a church to say, this, the, the meaning of this book trumps anything else I would like it to say. My job is to find what the Bible says, not shape what the Bible says. I want to go into this book and, and, and see uh, what it is that God would have to say to me, not justify what I want it to be for my friends. And this, this idea of, of holding the Bible as the judge that gives us a standard, which is why it's towards the beginning of our doctoral statement. So this is the foundation. What we're going to believe about Jesus, about creation, about salvation, about heaven is all going to come from this book, not what we want it to say. As Jesse pointed out earlier, it also is a reminder that if it's a judge, it has one true meaning, and that meaning is timeless, and it's an ancient faith. The song we sang, ancient faith, ever true. It's changing me, changing you, and it's been that way for thousands of years. The Bible is not an evolving book. It's something that is uh, the judge that that helps give us uh, the direction of where we go. So there's power in the book. We read it. We find God. We find ourselves in it. Smacks us between the eyes at times. There's a position of the book. It's a judge. It's an authority. How do I know what's right and what's wrong? I can I find the answer here. But also, and maybe most importantly, there's a there's a person of the book. Before we get there, when I was uh, 21 years old, I began a vocation that lasted about 20 years, and the job came with a book. And every year, I would pull out the book, and I would read it cover to cover. I'd underline the parts that I thought were most important. I'd highlight. I'd circle things. Uh, The book would go into my briefcase, into my bag, go with me to work. It would come home, go on my desk. I would photocopy pages. I would share it with others. I would try to convince people and show them why I was right. And it sounds like I'm talking about the Bible. But those who know me, know my life, know that for 20 years, I coached. And I coached uh, high school and college softball, and this book was the rule book. And every year I would get a new rule book, and I would highlight all of my notes from the last edition to the new edition and highlight things, circle things, photocopy parts, memorize things. And and it did it so that I I could know exactly, so that I could win arguments with umpires. (laughs) And not because there was instant replay, but because I knew the book. There was a. Midway through my softball coaching career, there was a rules change, which was a subtle change that allowed you to do some cre- creative things with a lineup. And it was a small little paragraph, and I remember finding that like that's big. And so what I what I did was I actually photocopied the page, and for the last four or five years of coaching, I implement I used this rule to my advantage. I would go to ground rules with a lineup card, and a third of the time, the other coach or the umpire would say, "You can't do that." and I'd pull out the photocopy from my pocket, which I learned I'd just keep it back there. And I'd say, but I can. And I would show them the rule, and it would win the argument because it was... But the point was, I didn't do this so that I would be seen as smart. I didn't do this so that I would be perfect with the rules. We did it for the joy of the game. I wanted to play, and my players wanted to play. We want to have the most fun possible and explore this thing to the fullest of our ability. And the more we knew the rules, the more we could take this thing and, and, and have fun with it. The point of the rules, the rule book, was never the rules, although I studied them faithfully. Even for wrong blind umpires, it's never the rules in in themselves. It's about the joy of the game. The Bible is similar. We can study it like a rule book, we can know it, we can memorize it, we can highlight all the right parts, but it's never about the rules. There's a person of the book. And as we get into the Bible, we get to know this person. And we get to know who God is, the God that Jim talked about last week. We get to know God because we get to know the Bible. There's theology in the Bible. But the point of getting into God's word and the point of our doctoral statement is not that we have airtight theology. It's to know God. There are rules in the book, and it's not just so the rules would teach us how to live. It's so that we get to know God. There are promises in the Bible that are really encouraging, but the point of studying the Bible is not just to get to know the promises. It's to get to know God. Theology matters. It really, really does, but not at the expense of knowing God. The promises are encouraging, and they matter. They get me up in the morning sometimes. But the promises themselves are not the point. It's the God behind the promises. The rules matter. They matter. We serve a holy God who looks to us and says, be holy for I am holy. But the point is not that I earn God's approval by following these rules. It's so that I can know him better. Verse 12 of Hebrews 4, if you still have it open, reminds us the Bible is not an end to itself. For it's, verse 12 the first clause, for it's the word of God is living and active. It's not just that it's the word is living and active. It's not just a book of words, but it's the word of God. And it's through that word that we know him, that we know Christ, and we can, like Peter, say, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. In our doctrinal statement, uh, it's also in your bulletin. It's reprinted there today. Uh, let me read the paragraph about the Bible. And this is uh, just kind of is, is a synopsis to say, you know what? This is what we as a church believe. And I would encourage you to take this home to lunch or sometime during the week. Look at this and study it and even engage your family, engage your your your, your your kid, your parents, your kids, uh, your spouse, and say, what do you believe about the Bible? Is this right? Is this, what else do we believe? What, what, and and uh, engage us, work through it together. Let me read it. It says, the Bible, while written by many different hands in many different places at many different times, the Bible is nonetheless the word of God inspired in its entirety and at every point by the spirit of God and is therefore without error. Through the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, it tells the one true story of God saving God's people, ultimately through the work of God's Son. As the final authority in all matters of life and faith, we trust all that it says to us and strive to fulfill all that it asks of us. When I was 15 years old, I was working at the day camp that I had attended as a kid. And like the lost and found we have in the back today, this church was having a lost and found sale where they had given up trying to get these things back. They were now just selling it whoever wants it. And there was sweaty t-shirts, sweatshirts, and a pile of Bibles. And as I was a counselor at the time, I was 15 years old, I'm walking through the gym, I see the table, and in the periphery of my, of my vision, I see a warped, waterlogged Bible that I had lost when I was 10 years old at camp. I remember when I lost it, I went back through the camp, it's got to be here, and I scoured all the places we were, and it was gone. And... Uh, it, I remember my last year owning this Bible. I had attended VBS and put my name sticker on the Bible so I could keep it forever. And so I said Christopher Hudson on it. And there, on the lost and found table, I found this. And I looked, and it was Ryan Dupree. He'd crossed out my name and written his name on it, but my name was still underneath. And it was in this. It was distinctively this was it. This was the warped, crunchy Bible with a broken binding, with even the underlined parts that I had that I'd written down as a kid. Like this is my Bible. And it was for sale for 50 cents. <laughs> I bought it back for 50 cents. And it has now traveled with me through six homes. And it is a treasure of mine. It's part of my legacy. It is who I am. It's part of, it's part of my story of how this book has shaped me and how God has shaped me. And the place I first met Christ. It was years later, I was looking at my bookshelf, saw this book, and I realized, that's the gospel. I was God's. I went wayward, and he bought me back. We engage this book as a church, and I hope individually, because it is a book that is powerful, that we find God it's a book that's powerful because we find ourselves. It's a, it's a book that is our judge, helps us know what's right, what's wrong, what should I do here, what should I do there? And it's a book where I find God. I'd encourage you, not just, it, that's why it's in our doctrinal statement, that's why it's it's prominent, and, and that's it is our authority. We sit back and say, we worship God, this is God's word, therefore his word matters. And that's why it's at the beginning of our statement. I would encourage you personally, to be people of the book. I'm getting older. And I've been around this book a long time. And sometimes you grow accustomed to it, don't you? Say, I've been a Christian a while. I've read it. But there's still truth in it. And as Kirsty shared, there's things that we read today that hit me different than they hit me before. There may, if you're new to the Bible, you've never read the Bible, pick the Gospel of Mark. You could probably go home and read it in two hours today and find places where Jesus hits you between the eyes. Maybe you're familiar with the Bible. Say, hey, you know what, get back into Psalms. Ask God to reawaken your heart, energize you as, as you read this book. Why? To be right? Please, know. Do be right. But that's not the motivation. Do it to find all the promises. They're there. They're really encouraging. We, we follow a God who's going to make all things new. That's as big a promise as we can get. But even that's not the point. The point is to know God and to know Jesus and to have relationship to know him. But read it to get to know God's story. And in that, find your own story as well. Let's pray. Our Father, you find us in strange places. You find us uh, after bad decisions. You find us uh, in many places in our lives. Lord, each of our stories here is so unique, and we can look back and find places that you touched us where we can say, where else can I go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Father, help us be people who follow you, who love you, and who love your word and study it as the means that we might know you better. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.